Well, I'm very happy to share some thoughts and reflections on the Dharma that come from looking at one of my favorite poems, a poem by Mary Oliver, one of probably many of our favorite poets, <laughs> um, a poem you may know called The Journey. And I'd like to read the poem and then um, go into some of what this opens up for me and share, and share that with you. The Journey. <coughs> one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. I'd like to read that one more time. The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So first, uh, a word about the journey, the the theme of the journey. This is a metaphor that we often use to talk about our lives, to talk about our spiritual um, work. All of these are metaphors. We talk about spiritual work, our spiritual path. And here we use the notion of the journey, and I think it's... um, 
very evocative because it reminds us when we see our lives as a journey, we see ourselves as in a way leaving our home, that we have to often go away from our homes on a journey in order to get new insights. We leave the familiar behind. On a journey, we may open ourselves up to the unknown. Typically, on a journey, we don't know exactly what happens. We may have an itinerary, but we don't know exactly what we'll find. We may find very wonderful things, and we may also find danger. We may also find wonderful danger. but there's a sense of, uh, of the unknown. There's a sense of leaving, really of leaving the house. And this is what the poem is about. The poem, right in the beginning, is about leaving the house. It's about the house really representing our habits, our conditioning. This is the language where in the house we have our bad advice. And so, near the beginning of the spiritual journey, we're face-to-face with our conditioning, our bad advice. Reading this poem, I was thinking that one way to talk about meditation practice is to say a continual, repetitive listening to our own bad advice. (laughs) So, uh, and getting taken in by it. And there's also the, the bad advice that we've internalized from others. So we have this continual bad advice. And so Mary Oliver says, the voices around you at the beginning of this journey keep shouting their bad advice. They keep telling us what we need to do. Now, the poem goes on to say, you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cries. So what are the voices in the house saying? They're saying, take care of me. They're scared because the person seems maybe to say, I'm leaving the house. I'm, when, we, when we go into our practice, we, we look at our habits and we possibly may leave the house. And what do the voices say? The voices say, take care of me. They basically say, stay in the house. Don't go outside. I need you. It's too dangerous. Last year, I came to a point in my own life where I needed to stop many things that I was doing. I had been busy teaching and writing, and about a year and a half ago, I wanted to stop everything because I was feeling that even though a lot of what I was involved with, um, had a rich quality to it. I was writing, I was editing a journal called Revision, which some of you may know, co-editing it. Um, I was chair of our entire faculty, as I often used to say, chair of the whole goddamn faculty. <laughs> 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 I can give you a, a sense of it. Uh, and <clears throat> 
and I, I, I felt like my deeper gifts and were my really my aspirations were needed more space, basically needed more space to come out. And I decided really to stop everything and to lay aside a whole year in which I could stop. And so I was able to do that. I, I took on no new students in my, in my teaching there. Uh, cut back my teaching to probably about 10 or 20 percent of what it had been and got agreements from students that I was only to be contacted in the first five days of each month <laughs> and, and, and not for some other period of time. I also was able to do a lot of a number of retreats. Probably was on retreat for three or four months total, including the, the two months up there, which was quite a, quite a blessing. And I stopped doing the editing work I also got off the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And people told me that if I did these things, there'd be problems. The Mend my life, the voices say. When one's moving in these directions, the voices will come. They'll be external and they'll be internal. The external voices say, if you do that, uh, Things won't be right. The, the managing editor of the journal said, if you stop taking your role, I was, uh, coordin- I was coordinating the editors, and he said, if you stop doing this role and don't do this, the journal will really suffer. <laughs> People on my faculty said, it's really important that you stay, it, you know, it's going to be hard, you know, you know, are you really sure you want to go? And there were um, inner voices too, you know, because I was I felt like I needed to drop a lot of the structures, and that's not so easy, you know, to um, let go of a lot of structures. There were also inner voices that were sometimes saying, "Oh, nothing's going to happen," or uh, sometimes in the midst of letting go of those structures, you know, it's sometimes disorienting, or some of the actual time was, you know, like, "What am I doing today?" Or, and it's scary, and I'm, I'm sure many of you know this, you know, from your own experience. So, I was getting that bad advice. I was getting that, mend my life, take care of me. Don't do what you most need to do for yourself. So we get those voices from others, and we get it from ourselves, too. Because in a way, what I think what the poem is reminding me is that... We're scared to go out of the house because in some way, and we learn this in our practice, in some way we are familiar with our habitual suffering and we prefer it over the unknown. Ask yourself if that's so. To what... we prefer the familiar suffering to the unfamiliar and the unknown. And that keeps us in the house. We prefer the old habits. And when we start to break out of the old habits, the voices are strong. They tug at our legs. They say, are you sure you know what you're doing? It's not that bad. Do you know that one? <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> 
Your life is okay. Look at other people. Compare yourself. You're doing okay. So what if you, at a deeper level, feel like a deep aspiration for more? So what? You're doing okay. Just relax. You're getting overly idealistic. You're too sensitive. Just learn to accept life. Listen to these old voices. The house isn't that bad. It's paid for. That's pretty rare in the Bay Area. (laughs) Somehow, though, we have to make that break. And that's what the poem is about. It's about making that break out of the old house, knowing the bad advice is bad advice, knowing the habits as habits, knowing that the house in some way is as the Buddha says when he talks one of his most familiar metaphors, or most familiar and also most powerful, talks about the fact that we could be said to be living in a burning house. Do you know that one? We live as if in a burning house and we don't realize it's burning. So somehow, we have to go out into the night, as Mary Oliver says, even though there's bad advice, the voices are melancholy, they're yelling, they're saying, mend my life, yet we have to, we have to move, we have to go out and follow something deeper, some deeper aspiration. So the poem goes on. You knew what you had to do, the poem says, So, in a sense, the journey begins when we say, I'm not going to listen to that bad advice. I'm going out. I'm leaving the house. I'm working with a different intention. I'm working with the intention to become free, to learn, to manifest my deepest aspirations and I'm not resting satisfied with the older intentions. In a sense, this is really where the, where the, the spiritual journey begins, with this intention to follow a, a different aspiration. And we may do that we may, we may do that on the basis of touching something that we've touched in the past. We may have touched that aspiration and it may get buried by the busyness. I remember that, you know, the sense of when I did my first retreat at, at IMS in Massachusetts and there was an incredible sense of homecoming. And I think maybe up until that point, I didn't really know what those deeper aspirations were. And the sense from that point, I began to act a little differently, that the motivation was a little different. And the Mahayana tradition talks about bodhicitta, or the the mind of enlightenment, and takes the cultivation of this aspiration as really central to our practice. How do we cultivate the aspiration to be free, to, to, to make of our lives this learning toward liberation? And in the poem, it's, it's saying that there, at some point, we get it. You knew what you had to do, says the poem. 
even though there were all these forces, external, internal, voices, the wind was prying with its fingers, even so we go out into the night. The poem goes on and says, it was already late enough. It was late and wild outside. And I was reflecting on this in terms of the fact that for many of us, it would be nice as if spiritual life and spiritual practice was something that came, as it were, with our mother's milk, and we just had this completely great spiritual upbringing, and everything kind of played, played out, and we you know, got awakened and had this happy life. Okay? For most of us, in a sense, we awaken, and it's late enough. Do you know what I mean? The, the, the sense of, uh, I thought of uh, Dante. If you know Dante's Divine Comedy, the whole work of Dante begins with a recognition of the lateness of awakening. Dante says, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. How hard a thing it is to tell of that wood, savage and harsh and dense, the thought of which renews my fear. I cannot tell rightly how I entered there. I was so full of sleep at the moment. I, he, and he goes on to say that he went through the night and then the morning came and he went on his way. So there's a sense that we find ourselves already in our lives when that aspiration to awaken or that, or that sense of practice or the urgency comes. And I know we often feel as if it's kind of, isn't it too late? Shouldn't I have been born in Tibet and got proper upbringing, you know, so that I'd really, you know, here I am, I've already done all these things, and, you know, I see these people who are, you know, they've been practicing for 20, 30, 40 years, and that's not me, and, you know, what about this practice? I mean, it's for other people, isn't it? I mean, I haven't had the right life, you know, my life is flawed, nor there's some problem, and I can't really practice, therefore, and I, I won't, I'll just do something else. And there's, there's that sense, which I think, um, I think needs to be talked about more, that sense of, of our life cycles and how we begin practice and how we often um, think that it's too late or think that it's, um, there can be a sense of judgment about our own spiritual practice. And I wanted, I wanted to um, read a poem that, that I wrote myself during the two-month retreat. And this was a poem about my own sort of coming to grips with that in myself. And there, there was, um, in that retreat, probably the, one of the, um, probably the biggest demon that I worked with in, in that retreat was a sense of somehow I had made the wrong choices in the last years, you know, I should have just 
just an intensive practice all the time, and then I'd be really where I, I should be spiritually. <laughs> Do you know that one? <laughs> um, and it's, it's, you know, it can be um, quite cruel. It can be quite a cruel thought. So I was, um, I worked with judgment and self-judgment a lot. It was one of the themes of the retreat. There were other themes, but that was an important theme of the retreat. And that was the, that was like the most cutting judgment. You know, somehow uh, I went and did teaching within schools for a number of years. um, And I should have just done practice. You know, that's how it appeared for me. Maybe it appears, I'm sure it appears differently for you, but some version of that. My choices are flawed. And so near the end of the retreat, um, this poem came out. And uh, it just came to me one morning, about six weeks into the retreat, right um, early in the morning, like 4.30 or 5, right at the time that the wake-up call was. So I called the poem, 5 a.m. wake-up call. And this is it. Sometimes I think I'm waking up too late. 49 years old, I have practiced the Dharma for 24 years. People my age and younger have had their openings and are now respected teachers whom I find now teaching me. My hair is beginning to turn gray, my belly moving slowly sideways some. At times I feel sad about the years spent scared and constricted. But what does the soft fog of the late night sky really care about all that when it's met in the great space of the present? What is important for my friend who despairs when she is heard and held? I wake up with a story behind me that is my own, and that, w- that still echoes in my body and heart. Yet my lamentation, I wake too late, echoes now, not as reproach, but as compassion, quivering in the stillness of the new morning. So, yeah. So there's a lot there, right? There's there's a there's a lot there, and I think that's prob that's there in some way, probably for most of us. We each have our version of that, and it's really it's possible to work with that. It's possible really to go deeply into that and to release it more and more, <clears throat> more and more. So in the poem, the person in the poem journeys out, even though it's late, goes into the night. The night is wild. The other, the other aspect of that, I think, is that it's, we tend to, we, I think we sometimes tend to idealize that we should be a certain way and not have the certain difficulties or flaws or choices we make. And the other, the other reflection I had on this was that it's, it's actually the bringing of attention and compassion to those parts of ourselves that we judge or that are hard, that actually um, 
deepen our own compassion. You know, it says, it says sometimes said the, it's, the, um, it's the holes in our being through which the light comes. Do you know that one? That, some, something like that, that it's going into our own self-judgment, sense of flaws, our own pain, our own difficulties, that going into that with awareness gives compassion and we can be with people who've who have the same experiences but maybe haven't gone as much into them. And we can be with them with understanding and compassion because we've been there. You know, and we know that and we've, we've worked with it. And so I think the, the poem is really pointing to that. We still go out into the night. We still go into the wilds, even though it's late. And as we do so, uh, Mary Oliver says, there's a new voice that appears which you slowly recognize as your own. And this is the, I think this is the quality that as we come to be with our sense of what's difficult in our lives, with what we maybe think sometimes is flawed or a problem, we come more and more really to be ourselves and to not have it be a problem. It sounds simple, right? It's, it's not so easy. We come to be ourselves, and we come to, by the practice of being mindful and compassionate with what's uh, difficult in ourselves, we come to know ourselves and be accepting. It doesn't mean we don't change a few obnoxious habits for it, too, <laughs> you know, but we, um, we come to see, we come to uh, basically be compassionate and wise in relation to our own conditioning. There, there's, a, there's a line in a poem that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, which, which I love, which I actually came to. Um, I had like two or three books with me during this retreat, and one of them was Thich Nhat Hanh's poems. And he has this line in his poem, which is really exactly about this, this point. He says, Why speak of the need to love one another? Just be yourself. You don't have to become anything else. Why speak of the need to love one another? Just be yourself. You don't have to become anything else. So, for me, this practice really gives that voice, that new voice that Mary Oliver talks about, it's a product of practice. It's that voice that we can trust. It's the no bullshit voice that grows in us. You know that voice? The, the voice we... Meditation practice is about learning to see all the different voices and knowing which give bad advice and which are really uh, authentic and honest and kind of have our deeper interest in mind in ourselves. And, and, we, and knowing that in ourselves, we can know that better in others. And it comes for me in, through the practice and through the, the going into the quiet. You know, I remember one of the first retreats I did, actually one, probably one of the second or third retreats I did, long retreats at IMS, I was um, doing walking meditation. And at that time, and I was starting to feel... You know, everything is mostly peaceful, calm, all very nice retreat. 
And at a certain point, I felt fear in relation to some people who were doing walking meditation next to me. And I didn't know why that was. I said, what's going on? And I felt uh, that urge to inquire. So I, you know, I asked that question, um, what's going on here? Fundamental inquiry question, what's going on? <laughs> and I got an answer from a part of myself that I didn't know so well before that. The voice told me the truth of why I was afraid. And it came in a voice that wasn't trying to figure anything out, manipulate, bargain, strategize. It just gave me the truth. And it felt like, at that time, it felt like a kind of a birth of what the Quakers call the still, silent voice. That that came into being, and in some ways it's been very much present. It's that voice which appears when we have cut through a certain amount of the conditioning and which can orient us much more faithfully than the bad advice. It's that voice to listen to when the bad advice people are all around us shouting, or when that shouting is going on in our own minds. It's like, uh, I also thought of this wonderful quotation that Thomas, from Thomas Merton, who said that our true self is like a shy, wild animal that only comes out when there's safety. And it's that shy, wild animal, as it were, which is the voice that that gives us the truth. And so in the poem, the new voice appears. And yet, in the poem it says, the new voice gives me company as I go deeper and deeper into the world. And, And this is interesting. This is an interesting twist. It's that Finding one's own voice and being oneself could sound selfish, right? It could sound narcissistic. It could sound marinisk, marinish, <laughs> or California-ish, right? It could sound that way, but there's something, and it's a perennial question asked to meditators, you know? Are you just doing this selfish practice by yourself to kind of have good vibes and forget about the world? The poem says differently. The poem says, as you find your new voice, you go deeper and deeper into the world. It's that sense that we, uh, as we know ourselves, we become able to be in the world much better. As we stand our own ground, as we know our own voice, we're not susceptible to the bad advice. Hence, we can really act with much more directness and compassion and assuredness about what our intentions are. And that we also may be much more open to the compassion that takes us into the world to to meet suffering. And you know, this this is the, in essence, the model of the bodhisattva. In Buddhist practice, the bodhisattva who combines the practice with the going deeper and deeper into the world. Deeper and deeper into what the Taoists call the dusty world. The world of uh, phenomena, of dust, of imperfections. And yet we go deeper and deeper into that. 
So it's a paradox. As we go deeper into our, as we go deeper into ourself, we go deeper into the world. As we save the only life we can save, we also can respond to the world. So shall I end by reading the poem one more time? I think I'll do that and then we can open, open things up. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones, but little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So, thank you for your attention. <laughs> Let me do that at the end. Okay. I actually have a copy of the poem which I'd like to give out as we leave. So you can take that with you. Yeah, did you have a question? No. Okay. Yeah. Okay. First, I want to say thank you for sharing the poem that you wrote as well. And um, I think one of the challenges that I have is once I recognize the inner voice, um, it is such a commitment to follow the good advice. Not only to hear it, but then um, when you know that's the truth, or when I find that that's the truth for me, to have the courage to follow that. And um, so it seems like an unfolding process of hearing, recognizing, and then being willing to hear, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's, um, it's true, it's, it's hard. You know, the bad advice has been around longer than the good advice, generally. <laughs> <laughs> and it's etched its ways into our neurons and, you know, muscles and, and our, our um, fibrillations of the heart, you know, it's, it's there in a powerful way. So I think we need a lot of tools. We need support. We need, we need sangha. We need the tools we can get that really give us the support to, to recognize the new voice and, and be able to respond to it. And we need personal tools to know how to um, know what to do when we have like the bad advice is ambushing us. 
because you know how bad advice ambushes. It's basically that you know where we're the bad advice is basically coalesces about places where we're uh, reactive. You know where we're kind of insecure and reactive, and so we can have moments when we're just doing fine, and then all of a sudden something happens, and we feel like all the bad advice comes rushing in. And so what do we do in those moments? Or what do we do when we're trying to strengthen a resolve? How do we get clear? And so I think we, we need all these tools. We need the inner tools to know what to do, almost in a meditative way, in those situations when there's reactivity. How to strengthen the resolves, you know, whether it's by really focusing on intentions, which, which is a central emphasis of practice. You know, I love the practice of every morning with one's practice, uh, setting intentions. That's a great one. And I think somehow, sometimes I, don't, I think we don't do that quite enough, that we don't work with intentions enough, because the intentions, as it were, are the good advice. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> and we may have this great advice, but we don't really somehow call on it enough, you know? And, and something that's just a simple thing to do that many of you may do, but it's just with your morning practice, just to set intentions, to say, all right, what's my intention for this sitting? What's my intention for the day? And to maybe revisit that. And that has a lot of power. So, so, and, then, and then community and asking for support from friends and so on. So it's a, it, it's a journey. <laughs> so. The yeah. part of sangha building is really uh, kind of in the beginning stage of spirit life or like adolescence. Yeah. You know, we jump from being in formal groups to then having a big retreat center, and at the retreat center it's all silent meditation, so yeah. mm. you can be there for days and never know who the person on the left or the right yeah. are, even though you experience their essence. Yeah. So um, developing that, that sense of Right, right. I agree. Yeah, the 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 cutting edge is to make this alive in daily life. Retreats are really, really, really helpful. But most of the people, almost everyone I know, is pretty committed to living a life in the world. So we have to make it work in daily life. And so I, I agree totally with you that that's something that we need to find out what makes it come alive in daily life. And, and different kinds of groups, like these base groups that I was talking about at the beginning, they really, really help. Like a, a group of people where you really know the people that you may meet with once a week, make a commitment to, where it's, where it's not as large as this, where it's, uh, you can really know people. And to work, you know, if possible, with someone who has more experience than one who can help be a guide is really, really helpful. Um, but yeah, and it's something that I think, we were just talking about that over breakfast today, you know, after the, after the work with the precepts, because we were talking about uh, um, just developing um, sitting groups and not needing to wait for someone with authority to say, here's what we're going to do. Just set up a, you know, set up a peer group. Meet once a week. You know, can provide leadership in different ways, whether it's through peer rotation or through um, listening to tapes or inviting people in from time to time. So it's really, 
I think we're engaged in this grand experiment to find out how it works in this culture, to live a life of awakening that's not second-rate. You know, that's not just sort of oh, I'm kind of doing it, but if I really wanted to do it, I'd go be a monk or a nun. You know, or I'd go do meditation all the time. I think we're exploring how to make, how to live this as full a life as we can in. Now we may need to change a few features of our society here and there. <laughs> You know, maybe no more electoral college. <laughs> a, a few other small things, but uh, but but really, I think that's that's the experiment that I certainly count myself as being part of. And I think I think I imagine that most of you are doing that in different ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you. And um, the thing that I was responding, one of the things I was responding to, you know, when you were talking about this issue of um, too late, and, uh, and that is, I've noticed that one thing that you know, evolved over the, over the years kind of that's been a really powerful um, support and kind of work has been this kind of deepening um, understanding of that, uh, that our life exactly as it is the exact difficulties, you know, the exact things that put our face to the floor, um, that that's exactly what our soul needs, mm-hmm. and there's never any place else. You know, our spiritual practice isn't supposed to look any, any different at all than it is out here. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of an anecdote to that. Yeah. To that, yeah. that can arise. And, um, and I guess the other side of that is like looking into, we, we get to that by looking into the thoughts and the emotions connected with wishing it were otherwise, right? That's how we get to there. It's, yeah. we, we, have, we have to start by, by working with the thoughts that say, oh, I blew it, or oh, I wish I would, you know, I should be like X, or, you know, or this person, or I think, you know, I looking at my own mind, I find, and talking with others, I think we each have like these uh, people that serve this role as being like good. Do you have, we have good people in our mind and we're not quite there, that they're the people who really do it right and they're, they're completely available at any given moment to be compared to. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I think we... So I think we get to where you're talking about by doing that work. Yeah, and I think, I think it's important to say that because sometimes we can get to that point more idealistically without having done the work, and it can be more of a thought. I'm not saying at all that that's the way it is for you, but it's, um, I know it, it is for myself and others that we have to really do that work of seeing the thoughts that would have it be otherwise and seeing what's there. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah, so so it's um, this quality that we live in the present, but we set intentions. This um, it's the quality of our lives that we, and I think that's the quality of Buddhist practice that we we don't see our lives as um, simply determined. That there's freedom to set intentions. The fact that something has been that a certain way in the past doesn't bind us for the rest of our lives, and yet we can't hide the fact that things have been a certain way, and so we. I think it's that quality that when we're when we're really fully in the present, there's a quality of freedom which comes with that. Because we can be with what's in the present in a full way, so we're not trying to either um, grab hold or push away. And we can, in that freedom and that willingness to be with what is, we can set intentions with. Uh, wisdom and compassion rather than reactivity. And that's a way to, I think, talk about that balance that you're talking about. That It's that way that we set intentions out of the sort of the, the freedom of the moment. And if we're not free, then the intentions will be somewhat distorted. Right? So it's, I think it's like linking intentions to the wisdom and compassion. That only comes when, when, when we can be with what is. So. That makes some sense of it. I'm not trying to say it's not a wonderful paradox that can puzzle us continually, but it's, uh, that, that's a way of making some sense of it. Um, sure. Yeah. I was I was thinking I was um, uh, two nights ago. That this is going sideways first. Two nights ago, I was um, with one of my uh, teachers, uh, Houston Smith. Some of you may know, and. We, we were, he was giving a talk and he was being asked all sorts of questions. Someone asked him, would you tell us about the content of one of your peak experiences? Because <laughs> uh, the, the subject was actually, uh, it was on, the subject was actually on entheogens and, and uh, mystical experiences. And he, he sat there in silence for a while. He said, no. and and, and it was such a pregnant no it had so much that could come out of it and and be sad as to what the no meant but anyway that's another so i was that occurred that occurred to me when you asked that question (laughs) Uh, well yeah uh i was when I asked that question, why is there fear? Um, I got the answer that, let's see, that um, I'm afraid of these people because of what I feel as their power. 
And so it was a fear of power in, in that moment. And I got that answer. And there, were, there was some sense, oh, gosh, I feel it's hard to be in these people's presence because there's a lot of power there. And I, uh, I got that. And I um, just kept on walking with them. <laughs> right? and, and, but I got a clear message, and that was, that was really what the uh, learning there was. And it was really kind of a birth of that voice. Because I don't, I, I really, and that was, it was completely spontaneous. I didn't, no one told me when you're in a difficult moment, ask a question like that. It was, it was like, it was this, the beauty that I think our practice, our practices have this creative aspect where if we really go into the practice, we'll discover all sorts of things that no one else has quite come up with. Or maybe they have, but so what? You know, that, and, and this was, for me, it was coming out of, it was like in the spontaneity of the practice, I needed to ask that question. And I had never asked it in my own life in this quite the same way, as far as I knew. And I asked the question, and I got an answer that really felt, oh, that's right. And, that's, and, it, and it wasn't a voice which was trying to con me or to make me look good or strategize. And I said, wow, what a great, what a great resource. And it, it, it kind of has stayed with me since then. You know, it's not kind of, it has. You know, it, it's, it has stayed with me and it's been available. I don't always, of course, use it or remember to ask the question, but it's, 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 a, it's something that came spontaneously. And I think that, that happens. I think that's the beauty of this practice, that we, we have access to that. Oh, yeah, well, I... Um, yeah, very much so. It was, it was uh, the fear, as it were, the fear and the difficulty prompted something very creative and healing. I just asked, like, basically what's happening. You know, what's going on? And I, I, I just let myself be quiet and listen. Just what, what's happening? What's that about? Something like that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.